future human visionaries. What tomorrow knows today. Produced in association with the V&A. Welcome to Visionaries, a podcast dedicated to futurological thinkers. We seek out people who are reimagining innovation in their field and ask them to apply their intelligence to emerging trends. Keep listening to hear the evolving story of their ideas. Anab Jain and John Arden are the directors of Superflux, a design consultancy and research lab based in India and the UK. The work of Superflux focuses on how emerging technologies are changing our everyday life and environment, and how they try to help companies make new technology more accessible and understandable to the common person. Anab describes Superflux in more detail. Something that we call design futurescaping forms part of our practice um, in an attempt to cut through uh, established narratives by engaging with two broad areas of interest. So we are interested in uncloaking the strange now, whether that's edge cases or disruptive forces hidden behind comforting metaphors, and extrapolating current trends to explore the sheer breadth of often unsettling future possibilities that lie ahead of us. So um, in a sense, we uh, our projects uh, stem from either an interest in an emerging technology or a current social or political concern and then we try and create these prototypes for the future. One of the current themes that we are working on in the studio is the broad idea of designing around nature. So today you have six-year-olds on their way to becoming DIY biologists. Here at the Biocurious Lab in San Francisco, they are learning the hello world of biotechnology. By reprogramming lab bacteria with DNA from a jellyfish, they have made a green fluorescent protein which glows under a black light. This is the world's largest gathering of students. Over 190 teams from 34 countries are all editing and building living organisms this very minute for the iGEM competition, also known as the Olympics of Synthetic Biology. And for some of the pioneers of synthetic biology, the ultimate future vision is to align with the ongoing genetics research and germline gene therapy. So BGI, a big corporation in China, have collected DNA samples from 2,000 of the world's smartest people and are sequencing their entire genomes in an attempt to identify the alleles which determine human intelligence. Apparently, they're not far from finding them, and when they do, embryo screening will allow parents to pick their brightest zygote and potentially bump up every generation IQ levels by 5 to 15 points. The tools for gathering genetic data are also becoming cheaper. So this is the Mountain View-based company 23andMe's Cute Spit Kit, and they've already collected 180,000 people's saliva um, samples in exchange for valuable health and ancestry information. Uh, recently, Anne Wojcicki, who happens to be the founder and also the wife of Google's Sergey Brin, decided to monetize the giant database of genetic information. So they've opened the treasure trove of genetics data to third-party developers to build web-based interactive tools. Life insurance providers, schools, athletic organizations could all potentially get their hands on your genetic data. And of course, the impact it will have on dating sites and apps is going to be quite unbelievable. So there are also quite murky legal implications of this sort of an area. Um, This is a protester holding a banner uh, about Myriad Genetics, who recently secured patents for locating and isolating the BRCA1 and 2 genes, which can mutate in ways that carry a high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. The chief justice, who was actually on the case, said uh, work on the gene was akin to merely snipping a string of molecules out of the body. But because of these patents, nobody else can provide any alternate tests and so you have to go through that $3,000 test in order to test for breast or ovarian cancer. 
And actually, 20% uh, of the human genome is under patent in the United States. Thousands of genes are co covered by similar patents in Europe, Australia, and all other parts of the developed world. Which begs the question, what are some of the darker and more murkier legal implications of synthetic biology as it starts becoming more and more part of our everyday lives? Uh, we are currently working on a project called Dynamic Genetics versus Man, which imagines a future world where synthetic biology and gene therapy have moved into the marketplace. In this world, the state's responsibilities have shifted from healthcare provision to being the provider of health insurance. So NHS becomes NHI, the National Health Insurance, an organization that uses a cost-benefit analysis algorithm calculating the healthcare implications of specific gene combinations, adjusting ins individual insurance rates accordingly. So if your genome shows a high risk for diabetes or cancer, you're likely to pay more insurance premiums. Um, what new laws and economic models might emerge under these conditions? How will intellectual property be applied and policed when designed genetic material makes its way into people's bodies and their lives? These issues and their wider implications are explored through the lens of a court case, which is brought by this big company, Dynamic Genetics, against Arnold Mann, whom they accuse of obtaining their copyrighted DNA from a black market clinic. Who owns their genes and who can patent them? Will we have patented children? And on the, is there an opportunity for a deviant or a pirate entrepreneur to sell in, step in and sell pirated genes for those who cannot afford the patented alternatives? How would healthcare models adapt to these new changes in the future? Ultimately, how will we value human life? Similarly, another kind of gene therapy which fascinates us is called optogenetics, and it's the ability to change the body's relationship to technology. In a project called Song of the Machine, we are working with scientists who are attempting to use this to restore some form of vision to people with retinitis pigmentosa who progressively get blind over the years. Essentially, they have found an algae that is light sensitive and just um, by inserting it at the back of the eye, it, it replace, it's replacing the dead retinal cells. Um, uh, and it is quite a, quite a different process from just sticking electrodes in your brains to make people see. Um, so obviously, these scientists are using a very data-centered perspective and are creating sort of image augmentation concepts to ask people what it would be like to start seeing again. And they've created this sort of Tron-like visions, you know, chroma, chromatic edge simplified views of the world. And they tested it out with some of the people. Uh, and the responses they got back was, I'd rather be blind than have my world look like this. So it was quite interesting because as scientists, they were coming from a very data-centric perspective. And when we started working them, with them, the first question we were asking was, what would it feel like to live with this sort of a technology? And so that led us to sort of start creating some experiments to understand what this bioelectronic prosthetic might feel like and look like and what they might actually see. Um, and so we found that actually people with this new new sort of bioelectronic uh, headset um, system could see in electromagnetic spectrums that are not normally visible to the normally sighted people. So you can see in the far infrared, in the near infrared, you can get B vision and so on and so forth. And these were things that were perhaps um, uh, quite, had been quickly discarded by the scientists but 
brought back into light thanks to some of these experiments. Um, and the important thing to remember is that here they're adapting the body to become, to better interface with technology and forming a new relationship with it, as opposed to something like Google's Glass, which uses the body's existing senses. Um, as the media landscape gets increasingly saturated with images such as this one, it illustrates how populist visions of the future technologies seem to arrive, a glossy desirable object from the future that lands in the present and suddenly everything is shiny and everyone is happy. It presents a simplified narrative around technology, seducing you into welcoming it into your life. But actually, the reality is that the way technology actually arrives us is through mistakes, blind alleys, and just good enough prototypes. And what we are interested in our work is revealing some of the complexities that lie under these singular visions and persuading people to see how we can actually explore these complexities. Um, and so for doing that, we take on some of some, of some slightly more public engagement-related efforts and open-ended explorations, and Power of Eight uh, is perhaps the most engaged manifestation of such an experiment where we put an open call out and invited people to engage in creating optimistic visions of the future. Um, how do you bring people together that have potentially conflicting views about a positive future? People with different aspirations, different backgrounds. Um, and the, so this was an interesting experiment. Um, what came out was an idea about a sort of a sustainable ecosystem, a future world where uh, there's no kind of we've dealt with climate change and so on, but actually what what, what it shows is a haunted uh, world of strange machines and modified nature. And um, one of the things that people were very uh, sort of worried about was the colony collapse disorder, the idea that bees are dying. And for instance, in China, uh, it's, it has forced farmers to do hand pollination. But however, the people in Acres Green uh, work with biotechnologists to create a new kind of bee that could help pollinate crops, uh, created with the plasmids from five different creatures. I think the important thing in this, again, is not so much about the fact there's a bee of this kind, but the idea that living systems are capricious and mutate. And so once you design them and let loose in the environment, what are the implications of them living amongst other creatures and, and the biodiversity of the area? Anyway, so we imagine various positive uses for the synthetic bee, from pollinating crops to keeping them as pets, and so on. But today there are defense personnel around the world who are toying with the idea of using miniature drones disguised as bugs or insects for spying purposes. DARPA's ultimate plan is to eventually hack into the insect's own natural senses, allowing the remote control operator to look out of the insect's own eyes instead of attaching a video camera for it to carry. Um, so what's stopping them from making the world's first 100% natural drone? Jacqueline Roberts of Future Human asked John Arden of Superflux how a new manufacturing marketplace, where designs can be made anywhere in the world and then manufactured locally, is changing the way designers work. I don't know, I guess there's two answers to that. One is that you, um, that everybody becomes a designer and everybody gets the uh, ability to, to make and produce their own stuff. That, but I think there's also a, there's a danger in that that... Um, we talk about kind of a sustainable future, but I think there's a, a danger of this kind of world of what's been coined as crapjacks, you know, kind of people just... Because it's so easy to make something, people are making stuff all the time and you end up with these kind of... If you look at a lot of the things that 3D printing is used for at the moment, it's used to make um, little trinkets, yeah, yeah, kind of like sort of mantelpiece kind of things that don't really kind of 
change the world in, but they use resources and things. So I think I don't know. I think it's a difficult question. I think um, in some ways, I suppose the easy answer is we'll have to see because a lot of these visions of of the future and, and, and how this technology will be used are just that, they're kind of one person's singular vision and they don't take into account things like the 3D printed gun or the fact that um, most of the stuff that's being printed is, you know, these kind of quote-unquote crapjacks. How do new materials technologies and 3D printing change the way that design is valued? I think the idea of design and what, what, what value design brings um, is evolving over time and I think we, we see ourselves not so much as designing a specific product but as, as, as a way of thinking about products so you're moving beyond, beyond being a specific thing that's designed now and what value it has compared to that design by a group of hackers to, to, the, to the idea of what these technologies mean and how we can actually make them more sustainable or make them more meaningful in our lives. I mean, um, just for instance, a project we're doing around civilian drones, which is completely different, unmanned aerial vehicles, is the idea that there are hackathons and node copter events and DIY drone dog, all these people making uh, projects around um, sort of uh, civilian um, drones uh, in our infrastructure. And what can a designer do there? What can, how can we as designers play a role in creating meaning around something that is going to occupy us skies in the years to come. So I think those are the kind of questions we start asking and I think I think there's more value in, in working perhaps with the with the people who are making these products and services rather than saying, oh, I'm going to make my iconic piece. I think there's also something about have, spending care and attention in making something that adds value as well. You know, mm. It's not just implicit in the material, but it's the process by which you make that object and I think in that way there, there is the potential that if there are people making something that they perceive to be valuable to them regardless of the material that it's made in it or it'll have a certain kind of yeah and also the idea that um, making is this maker culture and this boom in maker culture is quickly equated to manufacturing and they're two quite different things and so you have the economist printing uh, covers like the new industrial revolution and you know all these sorts of covers and books and and I think there's a big difference between making something and manufacturing at a large scale. So again, those sorts of differences need to be highlighted. So it's almost like the, the, the politics of the individual, the aspirations of an individual, suddenly get a lot more importance than they would have in a mass man. So you have bespoke prosthetics uh, producing uh, prosthesis for uh, individuals. If you like leather and tattoos, you get a prosthetic legs that suits your interests. And that, that level of individual uh, fulfillment um, is something that um, um, these new technologies are also producing. So it's going to be quite an interesting um, thing as we move into the future, how that will shape up. This recording took place at an event convened by the V&A with support from Z33, the Welcome Collection and the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by Future Human in Dalston, London. For more episodes of the Future Human podcast, visit iTunes or soundcloud.com.